Hello, everyone, and welcome to the What About the Canadians podcast. My name is Ashley. And my name is Shauna, and we're two rookie historians bringing to you the Canadian history you should know. This season, we will be discussing World War I through a Canadian perspective. More specifically, we'll be examining the battles the Canadians served in. All right, welcome back, everyone. We are discussing my favorite battle, the Battle of Vimy Ridge. I think this is the whole reason we picked World War One for our first season. It is, absolutely. First, we were like, well, let's just do Vimy, because it's Vimy. And yes. then it spurred the whole season. <laughs> it did. And this is our fourth time recording <laughs> this episode. <laughs> to be fair, we've gotten a lot better now. So we know what we're doing a little bit more. Yeah, I. this is the first episode we wrote and recorded. So we've gone back. <laughs> and changed <laughs> just about everything. Fixed it up for everybody. <laughs> yeah. Alrighty, um... So before we jump into the battle, uh, there are a few important changes to the Western Front that we, of course, must highlight. Uh, the first being that Joseph Jaffra, the commander of the French army, was replaced by Robert Nivelle. Now, this persuasive artillery general officer commanded the attention of both French and British politicians looking to sack Jaffra because of his failings at Verdun and the Somme. Now, unlike his predecessor, he wanted to go in with Glun, Glun's guns <laughs> blazing and uh, completely destroy enemy forces. So none of this gradual picking away at the Germans through a war of attrition. Now, he was more heavily in favor of relying on the artillery to break the front. He is... Uh, credited with saying, the artillery conquers, the infantry occupies. Now, it kind of seems to me, depending on your background, you tend to have a place importance on a certain <laughs> military group. Like Haig thought the cavalry would be like their shining star. Oh man, he loved that cavalry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nouvelle thought it was going to be the artillery and probably... He was probably more right than choosing the cavalry, but... Well, yeah. <laughs> so we've got him um, into the playbook now. Now, uh, second, uh, this is a big one. On April 6, 1917, the United States declares war on Germany. Now, at the outbreak of war, the U.S. government urged its citizens to put aside their loyalty and sympathy and to, quote be bound in honor and affection to think first of her and her interests. Now, her, her being... Her being the United States. Oh, because I always thought Britain was, like, the her. Yeah, the mother country. Not in this specific, like, instance, but just in general, I always thought it was, like, Britain is her, the motherland. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I don't think the U.S. is really all that genderized. Neither is Canada, is it? Well, Canada's, I, Canada's I, I, mother, I think. Yeah, because of Britain, I think. Yeah. That's yeah, that's true. Um, that was a quote from President Woodrow Wilson. So he at least saw the U.S. as a her. <laughs> so maybe Lady Liberty, Statue oh, of Liberty, something to do with that. I, could have, could have been. Yeah, could have been. Grasping at straws. I don't know. No, that's a that's a fair point. Um, so, but I mean, Britain was an important trading partner and with German U-boats interfering with such trade, it would become increasingly difficult for the U.S. to, to turn a blind eye to this. So come February 1915, Germany declared that any ship in the Atlantic that enters the war zone will be attacked. And that February, an American vessel was sunk but the German government was really quick to apologize, calling the attack a mistake. Oops. Like, yeah, back up the bus. <laughs> ah, it's like, oh, shit. Uh, but less than three months later, a British ocean liner carrying uh, 19,000 passengers, including 128 Americans, was sunk off the coast of Ireland. Now, the U.S. government demanded that Germany put an end to the attacks on passenger, 
and merchant ships, um, and perhaps maybe not wanting to draw the U.S. into the war, the German government did pledge to disembark passengers from unarmed vessels prior to an attack. Okay, hold on. <laughs> hold up. The... <sighs> They were just going to be like, excuse me, can yes. you get into this lifeboat before we bomb your boat? I know, right? Like, logistically, it's like not going to happen. No. And what are they going to do if the people say no? Or what if they don't have enough lifeboats? Or like, what? No. That is dumb. I don't know if this ever happened or not. You're right. It sounds completely ludicrous. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Uh, anyway, I don't know. Diplomacy uh, at its best, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> I didn't uh, read anything about if it happened or not. 1916, it sounded, was pretty quiet. But um, when we get to 1917, we know there's going to be mounting pressure to win the war. So <laughs> Germany again announces that ships entering this war zone they're going to be sunk without consideration. Like, screw your passengers. Like, no offense. What um, passengers are going back and forth, too? Like, during the war? I can't yeah. think that I'd want to get on a boat. Well, no, I mean, not me either. But uh, there, I mean, there were. Well, yeah, I mean, there must have been. Like, But I feel like that's getting on a plane and flying over Ukraine right now. Like, why would you do that? <laughs> I don't know. Trade. Goods, people still have to work, I guess. I don't know. I guess so. Wouldn't be me. I can tell mm. you that. Um, so the U.S. government uh, promptly cut off all relations with Germany. <laughs> so the Germans responded by sinking another ocean liner. <laughs> Jeez. Way to go, Germany. I know. So on February 2nd, 1917, Congress approved a $250 million arms appropriation bill. This means that the U.S. is starting to prepare for war. So just to give you an idea, in today's money, $250 million is $5.6 billion. Like, Woo! this is no chump change. no they are getting ready to go they are i don't know what germany what the hell were they thinking i don't know (laughs) Uh, so anyway um in march germany then sunk another four merchant ships um so president wilson called for a declaration of war which was resoundingly approved by both the senate and the house of representatives uh, but while the Americans were preparing to fight, we do see our Canadian boys from the 4th Division move 70 kilometers northeast to Vimy, where they will join the men from the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Divisions. You know, I just realized that I'm not sure we've mentioned the Kaiser, like, at all no, in this have. whole season, have we? I think we have. Hmm. Um, well, anyway. not very much. No. But- you know, is this part of like his, they they said they being whoever, but I, I've read that his mental state was, you know, maybe not so great. And he, he had like these delusions of grandeur and he, he thought he was way better than he was. And really, I think he just had like this poor little shrunken arm and he was kind of a sad guy. And I wonder if like bringing the states into it, he was like, yeah. I am so good. I am going to do this. And it just like, that was him. And then it just screwed them all over. I have no idea. I don't, I didn't deep dive into this because it's a Canadian podcast. Like we could have gone down a total oh, rabbit yeah. hole. I no, don't there's know. way too much info, but. Yeah, I don't know what the the rationale was behind that. Um, I mean, hindsight 2020, we could look at it and go, not such a great decision, but yeah. Yeah, who knows? Anyway, that's what they did. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but back to Vimy, because this is actually about Vimy Ridge, not not the United States. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so Vimy Ridge, where is it? It's in northern France. Uh, it's about 175 kilometers north of Paris. 
And it's about a seven kilometer, some sources said eight, so I don't know, seven to eight kilometer ridge that looks over the Douai Plains between Arras and Lens, which is in Nord-Pas-de-Calais region of France. Yeah, you said, you said that right. I tried. <laughs> I tried. The western slope was a gentle incline peaking at 110 meters, and it held three lines of German trenches. The trenches held a network of concrete machine gun emplacements and barbed wire. The ridge's eastern slope, which dropped into the German-held territory, was a tangle of forests with hidden machine gun nests and mortars. So it was just, the Germans had been there since 1914. So they had basically filled the ridge with concrete. They were just, they had built a fortress out of it. It was pretty intense. Um, So a little bit more of the geography of it. From south to north, three hills pushed through the center of the ridge. There was Hill 135, um, and that was named for the the, uh, number of meters it stood above sea level. Hill 145, and the highest and best defended of the three was Hill 120, which was also called the Pimple. I I hate that that name. I know, I hate (laughs) that word. Like, zit, I can talk about... Give me, like, whiteheads, blackheads, I don't know, but pimple is gross. I agree. Like, what an awful name. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it was an awful place, so I guess it... True. It suited it. Um, The pimple was at the north end of the ridge. So the Germans, like I said, took the ridge in 1914 during the race to the sea because it had such logistical and strategic advantages with the Germans being able to see any advancing Allied troops. You can see for miles up there once you get up there. It's funny, it doesn't seem like that big of an incline when you kind of look at it from below. But when you actually get up there, you can just, you can see the whole countryside. Oh, really? Because I was super confused when I got up there and I'm like, where is the slope they are talking about? Like, I really? <laughs> no, I don't idea. you remember? We went there in, what year did we go there? I don't even 2010. know. 2010? Yeah. And we would remember have been there right now. We would have been there right now. That's true, actually. Yeah. yeah. Oh, we can need to go back. Yeah. Um, but I remember, yeah, like from below, I could see the slope going up, but I, it wasn't like, it was kind of like, okay, yeah, there's a bit of a hill. But I remember getting up there and looking out the back of the monument going, oh my God, yeah, you can really see. Hmm. Well... <laughs> we have different views. We have different viewpoints. <laughs> we need to go back and look at the pictures. Actually, um, oh, I'll post a link on our website, but somebody took a drone and flew over Vimy. And oh, cool. you can see the, the battlefield. It's It looks like spectacular. It gives you a much better idea of, of what it looks like. Um, so, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll pin that for you guys. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I, I feel kind of bad. We've mentioned it a few times, like our one trip to France that we, we've talked about quite a bit in here. And I, I don't like necessarily talking about like inside things when we have other people listening, but that battlefield is, we didn't go to too many battlefields. Like we went to some monuments and things, but actual battlefields, we didn't see a, a ton of, but that battlefield was so crazy. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's probably one of the better preserved battlefields um, mm-hmm. for obvious reasons we'll get into. But I mean, we have to remember, too, like this was people's home. So after the war, I mean, they did reclamation on the land so they can fa- continue farming and rebuilding yeah. their cities, too. Right. So. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if you go there, it's like the craters and the the ridge that you can see. And it's just, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so back to the actual battle again. We keep getting sidetracked. From 1914 on to our point in 1917, there were two attempts to take the ridge by the Allies, by the French and the British, but over 150,000 French and British troops were killed trying to retake it. So this was kind of like the impossible. They could not get up that ridge. They, it just wasn't going to be something that they could do. When they took the ridge, they started digging in and they fortified it and reinforced it. And it was, they had tunnels underneath. It wasn't just dugouts. It wasn't just machine gun nests. It was a whole tunnel network underneath and the chalk beneath there and within the ridge itself. So it was, it was, it was like the pinnacle for whatever reason. Like, I mean, I know it's strategic and I don't know why taking that section 
was necessarily exactly what they needed to do at the time. I don't know that it was what they needed to do at the time, but they wanted it. And it's, it was that kind of like reaching yeah. for something you can't get. I can't remember the name um, of it. Are you going to talk about the Hindenburg line? A little bit. Oh, okay. Yeah, it had something to do similar to that. Um, there was another new line they were constructing. And I think Vimy was sort of a gateway to that mm. line. Well, this was, th the battle itself was part of a greater offensive. Um, it was called the Arras Offensive, planned by the French General Robert Neville that Ashley talked about. And he was convinced that this would send the Germans into full retreat. And this was, like Ashley said, kind of like Haig. It was like, this is what's going to do it. We're going to do it this time. And the Germans are going to be gone. I mean, it never quite works out like anybody hopes it will. His plan was very similar to Haig's. It was basically just break through and just go for it and do it and hard and fast. And so people were kind of wary of this plan. But... He was very charismatic, I guess. He knew how to talk to people. He, he was French, but his he was very fluent in English and could talk to the British generals, no problem. So he convinced the French politicians, and then he went to the prime minister, the British prime minister, Lloyd George, and talked to him about it. And he convinced him that his artillery-heavy plan would destroy the Germ German position and totally break the stalemate. The idea that the French would take the main offensive at Chemin de Dame. <laughs> I'm so bad. This is like a running joke now is that I have no idea how to speak French <laughs> or pronounce anything. Um, <laughs> so this, the main offensive was at that place, which was a large salient from Soissons to Arras. But the British would take an attack a week ahead of that to draw the Germans north and relieve some of the pressure on the French. So Vimy wasn't supposed to be the main part of this offensive is basically what's going on here. I think the running theme is let's provide relief for the French. <laughs> yeah, these poor French. I mean, my my brother-in-law is British and he doesn't I think he makes jokes at the French French's expense quite a bit because they have that rivalry of like the French are really poor in their military endeavors and the British always have to come in and save them and and, you know, it's just th these poor French, I don't think it's necessarily their fault, but they just got overrun and the men, they didn't have enough men and they were working their men to the bone and they couldn't do it anymore. That's funny because my husband also likes to make jokes at the French expense. And I think it's partly <laughs> because my father's side of the family is French and I have a French yeah. last name. But um, I do think that is sort of like a common theme amongst people. And I have to say one of the things I learned by researching World War One is just how heavy the burden was on the French. Like, I remember saying I was surprised that the British weren't full in necessarily in the beginning of the war and the show was being run by the French. So we have to remember, like the pressure and the burden that was being placed on them. And I don't think they were inadequate in any sense of the means, like at all. I just think it was the circumstance. Oh yeah, no, I, it's not their fault. They weren't doing a bad job necessarily. It was just what it was. They were yeah. being overrun and it was in their territory. And yeah, people forget crabby. that they're the ones being attacked. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. In their homelands, like it's different. Yeah. <laughs> So Tyler, stop making fun of the French. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's calling you out by name. Oh, jeez. Oh, okay, so relieving the pressure on the French meant that the all not all the German troops, the German um, reserves would go north. So this plan was very sloppy by Nivelle here. He it was rushed. It was leaked, actually, too, in some form. So they actually found operational or orders circulating in London at the time. So the Germans knew. Like, I mean, if anything gets out, everybody knows it. So the Germans knew what was coming. And generals, the German generals, Hindenburg and Ludendorff, were really quick to create a new reserve position, which was called the Hindenburg Line. And this was specifically to mess with Nivelle's plan. They actually ordered an evacuation of the, that salient that I mentioned. So they pulled their line back 
so they didn't they couldn't be surrounded on three sides and then fortified that line so there was really that attack wasn't if either it wasn't going to happen or it was going to run into a cement wall right and i think that's where um this other line also comes to play like it's a, a subsidiary type line associated mm-hmm. with the hindenburg line and Vimy was kind of a gateway to it. So I think yeah. that's part of the, the strategy there. Makes sense. So when the the Germans retreated from this salient, they didn't just like back up and take their stuff with them. They adopted what they called a scorched earth policy. So they burned everything. There was not a building, not a road, not a bridge, not a railway, not a tree. There was like nothing left. So there was nowhere for the allies to hide, nothing for them to do. It was just like gone. So that really screwed the plan too. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) We can see you. (laughs) Yeah, they can call over the line. We see you hiding. You're laying on the ground. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it, it made the Germans... 10 times stronger. And the the French were like, you know, throwing up their hands, like, what do we do? But Neville decided to push through with his plan. And then the Canadians received their orders to attack on Vimy. So the Canadians at this point had been in the war for three years, I think, four years, Mm -hmm. three years. Mm -hmm. They were battle hardened. They had been at the Somme. They had been at Ypres. Most of them that survived knew what they were going into. Um, so this is part of the reason that the Canadians were tasked with taking Vimy. Um, and this was the autumn of 1916 when they arrived there. So this was quite a few months back from the battle. Um, but they were put to work right away. They basically built the infrastructure of a city. There were over 100,000 Canadians there and 75,000 British soldiers at the ridge, which would have made the population, Ashley pointed this out to me, Made the population the third largest city in Canada at the time. So Winnipeg. Yeah. Our good friend Winnipeg. <laughs> <laughs> so they they dug in and they built a city. That they did. So what did this battlefield city look like? Now, on the surface, we see the typical system of trenches. Like, I'm not going to go through that detail again. But um, in the rear, they had to build over 40 kilometers of roads to transport supplies, uh, which on some days were loaded with 2,000 trucks moving ammunition. Like, this was no small endeavor. Um, In addition, they had to build uh, approximately 72 kilometers of water mains to move 2.3 million liters of water that was needed every day for the men and their 50,000 horses. Oh my gosh. That is a (laughs) lot. That's crazy. How long does it take to build a house here? Like if you're building a new house, just the house itself can take like a year, right? Yeah, I think the average is like nine months. Yeah. It's crazy. Come on. Get it together, developers. They build (laughs) Vimy in like three months. (laughs) Uh, I'm guessing they didn't have like 175,000 men at their disposal. True. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. They they didn't have, they don't have the labor. They don't have the labor. (laughs) (laughs) Or someone bossing them around to do it. So as Shauna mentioned, underneath lay a labyrinth of tunnels and caves that were used to transport supplies and house soldiers. Now, the largest cave called the Zivi Cave could hold up to 500 men. So, I mean, these caves are massive. They're massive. Oh, God, I would be so claustrophobic. Oh, yeah. Yikes. Yeah. Um, So... Sean had mentioned, too, that it was actually really the British and French that had, like, built a lot of these tunnels in the prior years. And the French and British actually built upon tunnels that had been used during medieval times and warfares. I tried to look up which battles or wars it would have been, but I couldn't find anything. So that was disappointing. But anyway. But that's cool still. Yeah, that's super cool. So, I mean, there were about a thousand miners on hand at Vimy, and on average, each miner could dig about 20 feet per day. 
into the chalk. But uh, getting the Canadians to dig in general was no easy task. Uh, the Canadian Corps commander, Julian Bing, even stated, you Canadians are brave people. You will fight and die to the last ditch, but I'll be damned if I can get you to dig that ditch. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess it wasn't a... One of our favorite activities on the front. <laughs> that surprises me, actually, because I remember like way back, I think it was like our first episode or something, we talked about how people in Canada didn't want to hire British because they were like fancy pants and didn't want to do the work. And now they're saying the Canadians don't want to do the work. Just digging, I guess. I find that weird as well. I mean, if you look at our history with the railroad, like we would have had miners. Oh, yeah. And, and laborers of that nature. But uh, yeah, apparently not. Well, digging is not fun. We had to dig a trench in our backyard last year just for a gas line. And it was only like, I don't know, I think it only had to be 18 inches deep or something. And that sucked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, yeah, they just weren't into it. <laughs> there you go. But um, at this stage in the war, tunnel systems became massively important um, because it allowed for the unimpeded movement of men, supplies, and communication lines to the front. Plus, it masked your movements, which often made it difficult for the enemy force to gauge um, like the numbers of men that you had and the weapons you had available. So it took hundreds of men at night working in relative silence to remove the chalk, which they then hauled into large craters covered in water so German reconnaissance planes could not identify where they were digging. Now, all the while, one soldier would sit dutifully with his geophone, listening for picking and scraping sounds in the nearby German tunnels. Now, as some of, some of you may have guessed, the reason why you're listening for German movements in their own tunnels is because you are probably digging a sap underneath them. And that is, of course, where you would place and detonate a mine in hopes of, of course, blowing them up. <laughs> Sean has talked about that in some previous battles. I think that was St. Elwha Crater episode. Yeah, yeah. I think so. So for those soldiers assigned to listen to the German tunnelers, they said the most terrifying moment was when the sound stopped. That is when you hightailed it out of there. Because that, <laughs> that meant they were going to try and blow you up in turn. So <laughs> what a job. Jeez. <laughs> now, the conditions in the tunnels were as equally deplorable as the conditions in the trenches. Now, just kind of imagine yourself slowly descending into a dark tunnel, feeling like the mud sloshing beneath your feet while the putrid smell of urine and sweat hits your nostrils. Beside you, men play cards in the candlelight, ignoring the distant cries of dying men. Now, the tunnels may have provided safety from sniper and shell fire overhead, but for many, they would have rather taken their chances on the battlefield. Now, I was quite surprised by this, but when we were at Vimy Ridge, our tour guide um, mentioned that they, like the runners, so people who were delivering messages and whatnot, um, they would call out to men in the cave and there would be kind of like this competition to be, to be a runner because people just oh wanted out of the cave. They would rather take their chance and die than, than be in that cave. Oh, well, with that description you just gave, yeah. Yeah, so it's uh, it's no walk in the park. Now, the tunnels at Vimy are some of the best preserved at the front. And of course, when I think of the Battle of Vimy Ridge, the tunnels immediately come to mind um, for reasons that Shauna will get into. But um, also, it's because... A part of our history is carved into its stone, like literally. So, I mean, at times there was absolutely nothing for the soldiers to do but wait. So to kill this time, they would etch drawings or emblems into the chalk. And often these emblems were of the maple leaf, which was sort of our unofficial symbol of Canada at the time. And luckily these little pieces of art have been conserved. Um, so 
when we release this episode, go to our social media site. Like I'll post some pictures of the artwork. Some of it is incredibly impressive. So look for that. That was always like, that's something that I definitely remember from going in there. Like it's just really humbling maybe is the word. Yeah. To I be think, in there. I think it's a prideful moment for me. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really, it was really cool. Um, so now trench life at Vimy, of course, it's going to be similar to the other conditions we've talked about on other battlefields. Now, like on a warm day, of course, the trenches are completely laden with mud and it was just so thick. They refer to it as gumbo. Now, a jacket covered with mud could weigh up to 45 pounds and some of the men would cut off the skirt just to lighten the load but then they were fined a dollar for destroying government property. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. That's ridiculous. It's like you are in the battlefield sacrificing your life and they're going to charge you a buck. For cutting, you can just be like, well, no, actually that, that mortar that just came through here ripped it off i didn't cut it that was from fighting so (laughs) don't charge me that dollar i wonder how much that actually happened but i can't think could you imagine how much the men would hate anyone that came along and was like you cut your coat you cut your coat you owe me a dollar yeah that man would end up in the mud somewhere I mean, I'm sure they probably made an example of a couple of guys, but it's just hilarious. <laughs> um, anyway, on the opposite spectrum of the winter of 1916-1917 was the coldest during the war. And in, for an entire month, the temperature did not rise above minus 18 degrees Celsius. Oh, and I don't know about gosh. you, but no, like... <laughs> Just no. We get Chinooks here. We're a little spoiled. (laughs) Yeah. I couldn't do it. I'd be miserable. Um, Yeah, anyway. I mean, it was so cold um, that the bread that had come out of the ovens, it froze immediately and had to be cut with a hacksaw. So... (laughs) Have, have fun eating that. Um, on one particularly cold night, um, Jim Curtis, uh, a soldier from Calgary, remembered that in the dead of night, being completely exhausted and frozen to the bone, he crawled under the blankets with a group of strangers, only just to discover the following morning that they were all corpses awaiting for burial. Now... Oh. Of course, we know by now that this experience left Jim completely unfazed. Like, it's nothing new. Um, I found it interesting in uh, Pierre Burton's book, um, Vimy. I relied a lot on his book uh, for this episode. Um, He had described how in a nearby cemetery, um, identification tags had to be hung from the thousands of crosses used to mark the temporary burial of the fallen. And... On like a still night, the soldiers in the trenches could hear like the clinking of the tags, which was just kind of this unfriendly reminder of the fate that awaited you. And I was just I'm just getting chills. Oh, I've got goosebumps all over my arms now. That's so creepy. Super. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. it. Yeah, it just goes to show you like how... I don't want to say hardened, but your brain protects you from these certain situations, right? Like, oh yeah, you you've got to become numb in some ways. Yeah, they're just to like, get through it. Okay, but to us, it's like completely unbelievable. Yeah. Now, um, by this stage of the war, uh, we do have to remember, of course, like hundreds of thousands of men have already fought and died at Vimy. So, like I said, like the sights and sounds, while unsettling to us. <laughs> Nothing new. Those poor guys. All right. So we are going to jump into what I call the main players. So we've been teasing you a little bit. Or (laughs) I don't know if you felt teased, but I felt like I was was teasing you. You were being coy. I was putting like a little like fish hook out there for you and dangling it around. Um... Uh, we keep mentioning that we're going to talk about the men at the head of the Canadian Corps 
And that time has now come. Oh, you guys are so excited. I am on the edge of my seat. I am thrilled. Good. (laughs) Actually, Um, I didn't read this part yet. I don't remember it from the last time we recorded. So I'm interested. Well, good. (laughs) Well, I changed a lot of it. So it's going to be new. It's a whole new story. So the question is, well, why did we wait? Well, the Battle of Vimy Ridge, in my opinion, was predominantly Canadian. They fought and led the battle. Now, we, of course, there were other units there. And like the British artillery units were there to back us up. But it was really the first time that all four divisions would fight together. And it was planned by the Canadian commanders in the Canadian Corps. Now, of course, we had to get approval from like the first army commander, Henry Horn, but by and large, it's a Canadian It is Canadian. Yeah, that's not going to be disputed at all. Right. So at the helm of Vimy operations was a Lieutenant General, Sir Julian Bing. Now, for Canadian hockey fans, if that name sounds familiar, it is because of the Lady Bing Memorial Trophy given to the most sportsmanlike player, was donated by Julian's wife, Marie, because she was such an avid hockey fan. That's adorable. Totally. Can you imagine, like, this aristocratic lady, like, just (laughs) loving hockey? (laughs) It's amazing. Um, And as a side note for hockey fans, Conn Smythe um, also served in the Battle of Vimy Ridge. Um, There is a trophy for him um, for the most valuable player in the NHL for the year. Uh, Speaking of the NHL. No, let's not speak of the NHL right now. We got annihilated last night. (laughs) Anyway. No, they're, they're coming back. They're coming back. Yeah, it's been an interesting series. As you're listening to this, we're in round two of the 2022 hockey season. So it's Calgary versus Edmonton. It's the Battle of Alberta. And we are from Calgary. Yes. (laughs) like That's an important stipulation there. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So this is a big deal. (laughs) Anyway, so Bing entered into military service at the age of 16. Now, he served in the Prince of Wales' own Royal Hussars in India and in the Battle of Tamai in Sudan, later declining an opportunity to become the future King George V's household officer. He instead attended the Staff College at Camberley, which is just basically a military college. Now, at the turn of the century, like every good British lieutenant colonel, Uh, He served in the Boer War, and he later commanded the British forces in Egypt. Now, come World War II, World War II, World War I. (laughs) I was going to say, we're jumping ahead there. (laughs) No, I don't think he served in World War II. No. No, I think he would have been in Canada at that time. Anyway, um... So Bing, he was none too pleased to be assigned as commander of the Canadian Corps um, in May of 1916. Now, as we just told you, he was a professional soldier with an impressive resume. And we know that our boys were kind of known for being a little unruly. So in a letter to his wife, Marie, he stated, why am I sent to the Canadians? I don't even know a Canadian why this stunt? I am ordered to these people and I will do my best, but I don't know that there are any congratulations in it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, fine, I'll do it, but I'm not going to like it. Yeah, no <laughs> kidding. Now, unbeknownst to Bing at the time, he was the right man for the job. Now, with an army largely composed, like as we said, of your farmers, your ranchers, your cowboys... Uh, The Canadians had little patience for pomp and circumstance. Uh, Just for example, when the newly promoted Sergeant Castles was told that he was no longer permitted to walk with the privates, he tore off his stripes and declared, well, I'm not a sergeant anymore. (laughs) Like, (laughs) it's just not their thing. (laughs) So in the British system where seniority and society dictated rank, the Canadians cared simply 
whether the man beside him could do his job. Now, Bing, of course, being an aristocrat by birth, um, on the field, however, he got his boots dirty. He was often seen on the battlefield and even on the front lines talking to his men. And he quickly gained the respect of the Canadians to which they earnestly called themselves Bing's boys. So under the command of Bing, there were four divisional leaders. Now, Henry Burstall was the leader of the second division, and he was born in Quebec. He studied at the Royal Military College and joined the Canadian militia in 1889. Now, he too served in the Boer War with the first Canadian contingent and then the South African Constabulary. By 1915, when he enlisted with the CEF, he was promoted to Brigadier General. Now, Lewis James Lipset, leader of the 3rd Division, was born in Wales, but moved to Bedford, England when his father died. Now, despite unable, like not being able to spell, <laughs> he passed his entrance examination and was admitted into the Royal Military College at Sandhurst. They had low standards. Either that or he really wanted into that into that college. Uh, apparently, he always kept a little dictionary in his pocket. Aw. Yeah, because he just wasn't, he couldn't spell. <laughs> well, we all have our troubles. Oh, 100%. Um, just as a kind of a side note, um, there were some notable attendees at this college. Um, so we had King Alfonso Twelfth of Spain, of course, Field Marshal Earl Haig, um, Frederick Stanley and Prince Alexander of Tech, um, both who were Governor Generals of Canada, and uh, Sir Winston Churchill. Now, if this name kind of sounds familiar to you, you might know it better as the Sandhurst Military Academy, and it preceded the college, and this is where Prince William and Prince Harry uh, would have attended. So, cool. There, there you go. There's a long history there. Now, after graduation, he served as a second lieutenant in the Royal Irish Regiment. He moved up the ranks while he served in India and Pakistan. Now, after this first military stint, he too attended the staff college at Camberley and then took a staff appointment with the army in Africa. Now, by 1907, Lipset had moved to Canada to help standardize a policy and training within the militia. Um, and he actually was a bit of a mentor to uh, Curry. Like, so he had influence over people that he was working with in World War I. <laughs> um, now, during the war, he was known to be orderly, calculated, efficient, and strict. But he was also, and I quote, as jolly, unaffected, and likable as he had been as a boy at school. Now, according to his biographer, Lipset understood the need to, and I quote, set an example of fearlessness and disregard of danger to those under him at all times and in all places. In fact, to lead and not to follow was the ideal which he set for himself and lived up to the end. Now, he did have a reputation for building well-trained units, but he was also open to new strategies and technologies. Now, historian Daniel Dancox asserts that Lipset was arguably the best of the divisional commanders. Now, David Watson was the leader of the 4th Division, and he was an orphan from Quebec that worked his way to become an owner of a newspaper, where at times he often promoted his conservative agenda. <laughs> I guess when you own your own newspaper, you can kind of do that. Um, he enlisted with the 8th Royal Rifles and gradually climbed the ranks, like all the soldiers we've discussed before. And by 1911, he was given the ceremonial honor of commanding the Fusiliers that accompanied the Canadian delegation to the coronation of King George V. So that's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. um, by 1914, at the age of 45, he enlisted with the first contingent and gained command of the 8th Royal Rifles. So Watson's the guy that's been there from day one. He went through Valcarche, Salisbury, Second Battle Ypres, all, 
all of it. If you want to know what his life was like, I suggest just listen to our podcast because it's <laughs> Cause awesome. He's there. He's there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, in June of 1915, Sam Hughes offered Watson the chance to go back home and to help prepare the new wave of troops uh, coming. But he refused. He said he, um, he would desire nothing better in all the world than a return to Canada. But my duty is here with the 2nd Battalion, who have been so loyal to me. Um, now, climbing the ranks... Of course, I don't know why I keep saying that, but their, their positions change. Um, of course, he gained command of the 4th Division in April of 1916. All right. So then there was Arthur Curry, who was the leader of the 1st Division. Now, he was a farm boy from Ontario, and his nickname was Guts and Gators because he towered over most soldiers standing in at six foot four and weighing over 200 pounds. Now, just for reference, the average height of a Canadian male in 1914 was 5'7". <laughs> so, <laughs> so he was a big guy. He was. Now, he lived in Vancouver and worked both as a teacher and a real estate operator, and a struggling one at that. But Arthur had bigger dreams and was eager to climb the social ladder. As a corporal in the non-permanent militia, his moment came when he was offered command of the 50th Battalion. However, commissioned officers were expected to pay their own Highland kit and give their pay to the mess. And Curry just couldn't afford this on a $62 salary a month, like salary he was making a month. So he did accept the role um, and he then later accepted command of an overseas brigade. But the problem was, is that his debts were spiraling out of control. And in desperation to avoid bankruptcy, he embezzled $11,000 from his unit that had been given to them for new regimental uniforms. Oh, no. Yeah, that's no, bad news. That is that's bad a lot news. of money too. Like eleven thousand dollars back then. Wow, that's about two hundred thousand dollars today. Um, so when that kind of money goes missing and your unit doesn't have new uniforms, it's not going to take long for people <laughs> to figure out something's not quite right. So, I mean, by this time he was overseas. Um, when the rumor mill was was spreading like wildfire. Um, and with the government catching, catching wind of his transgressions, um, Prime Minister Borden even had to take part in a three-year cover-up just to keep the scandal under wraps. But the question is, like, why? Like, why would you protect this guy? Now, on paper, Curry was an unlikely candidate for the commander of the 1st Division. And what I kind of mean by that is he's not an aristocrat. He didn't have a lot of military experience. But, I mean, on the field, he had proven himself to be one of Canada's finest soldiers and one of the most respected soldiers. So court-martialing this guy would have been exceptionally bad for morale. So luckily for Curry, um, David Watson, who again is the commander of the 4th Division, and a man by the name of Victor Oldlum, um, they lent him the money to re to repay back what he had stolen. So Curry later admitted that for three years, it was the first and last thing he thought of each day. So, <laughs> wow, <laughs> obviously way heavy on his mind. <laughs> yeah, but he had some good buddies there. Can you imagine being like, here, man, here's $200,000. Go to pay off your debts. Totally. Wow. Yeah. So, um, like Bing, um, Curry was an orth unorthodox leader that had little time for outdated practices. I mean, we've mentioned this before. The British Army was fighting a 20th century war using 19th century tactics, and it led to the death of over 600,000 soldiers, including 24,000 Canadians in the Battle of the Somme alone, and neither Bing or Curry were interested in repeating these mistakes. Now, being a strong tactician with an eye for detail, Bing gave Curry the task of analyzing the failures at the Battle of the Somme 
and to devise a new strategy that could be applied in their approach to Vimy. Now, coincidentally, Curry was invited by the French to visit the Verdun battlefield, just to kind of get an overview of what had happened, you know, kind of a lessons learned type of thing. And uh, he purportedly pumped everyone dry with his inquisitiveness and uh, he would actually cross-reference reports and statements provided by the French commanders against their junior officers. And he often found that there were discrepancies. So like he wanted to know what was actually happening happening on the battlefield. He didn't want the sugar-coated like review provided by the commanding officers. Well, that makes sense because if you don't know exactly what happened, how are you going to change it? A hundred percent. But... Uh, I mean, we know that these guys wanted to cover their butt, probably. So that's why they mm-hmm. weren't learning anything. So good on you, Curry. Um, I mean, and as exasperating as Curry may have been, I mean, he didn't want to repeat past mistakes. And he wanted to explore new strategies um, that would not just win the battle, but would win the war. That makes a whole lot of sense. Absolutely. Finally... We have a guy with a brain that's working. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's forward thinking. He wants to be a little bit more modern. That's That's good. (laughs) Anyway, those are the big four. Woo. All right. Big five, I guess. Big five. (laughs) Yeah, if you include Bing, it's five, right? Yeah. Now the stage is set. We have all our big players. We know what the battlefield looks like. And we are going to leave you guys right there with a big cliffhanger. And in one month, we'll come back with Vimy Part 2. Thanks for listening. You can catch us at whataboutthecanadians.com or Facebook and Instagram at whataboutthecanadians podcast. If you want to like us, follow us, leave us a review, we're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>